1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for today's interview with Joshua Schimmel, professor of soil ecology at University of California, Santa Barbara. His book, Writing Science, How to Write Papers that Get Cited and Proposals That Get Funded, was published by Oxford University Press in 2012. Are you a scientist? And Do you write? Of course you do. Well, every scientist needs this book. I mean it. Get the book. Writing Science by Joshua Schimmel does what no other writing guide for scientists does. And you can trust me here. You know I help scientists write at their best. And you know now that I'm a writing guide nerd. Joshua Schimmel does, in writing science, what someone should have done long ago. And that is, translated the techniques of the fiction writer into the text of the science writer. The payoff for you, the writing scientist, is huge. You know how to say what you need to, to whom you want, to the purpose you have, with the result you hope. That's some pretty good stuff. Scientists are some of the most dedicated workers I've ever met. They are exacting people when it comes to their work. They shirk no quadruple checking of their data before resubmitting it all to another round of tests. They measure statistics to the fifth and sixth places behind the decimal point. They run experiments for months and are satisfied if the results produce just one good figure. My contact with scientists has shown me that if you've got a query not pertaining to personal matters, scientists are people too, if you've got a question about the facts, well then you can trust a scientist to give you their honest and straightest answer. My contact with scientists has as well shown me this. If you ask a scientist to put that honest and straightest answer in writing, the scientist will but the text will not. What do I mean? I mean that very many scientists just don't have it when it comes to writing. It's like science and text are two choices. And we text people who write novels or poetry or journalism or memoirs. We are the ones who know how to say things, though very many of us often find ourselves looking for something to say. The other choice, the choice for science, would appear to go the other way. No lack of things to say, but too often, something between indecision and incapacitation on how to say those things. The age-old adversaries, art and science, reappear in this present-day divide between the writers and the scientists. But it's a phony division. There are excellent writer-scientists, and there are non-scientists who couldn't write a piece their mother would read. Joshua shimble's book, Writing Science, proves this point. For one, Joshua is himself an excellent writer and a researching scientist. The book is a great read, compelling, clear, informative, and entertaining. And Joshua's research publications, which serve on occasion as examples in the book, are informative, clear, compelling. I'll leave it to his science colleagues to decide if it's entertaining, too. Joshua also showcases many an example of great scientific prose from a wide array of disciplines and specialisms. So. The good writers of science are definitely out there, but they may well not be in the majority. And as any exacting writer knows, even good prose can become better. Even a good writer can do more. Neither in writing nor in science is best a meaningful word. So the sciences have their struggling writers, their reluctant writers, and their, well, bad writers. What better way to help them and everyone else to excellent prose than by turning to the people who practice writing for a living, the novelists and the journalists. This is the masterstroke of Joshua Schimmel's writing science, where scientists learn how to recognize the readers who will be holding and reading their articles, where scientists learn how to write their data into a story, where scientists learn how to approach the task of communicating their findings and their ideas as would a novelist his or her task of communicating real people. Both are, as Joshua makes the point, professional writers. Because that's what scientists are, professional writers. And Joshua's reminder of the fact is just what is missing today in too many a scientist's training. So let's begin today's episode, Joshua Schimmel and Writing Science. Joshua, welcome to Scholarly Communication.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Um, One question I like to kick off with very often is where the book came from, and uh, I'm going to ask it to you. (laughs) Where where did the idea for the book come from? Where did the germination process occur, and how did you end up with such a fantastic uh, writing guide?
0: Um, the, The germination really started early in my professional career as an assistant professor at the University of Alaska, and a colleague of mine recommended Uh, Joseph Williams' book, Style Towards Clarity and Grace. He's a linguist and so looks at language and communication from the bottom up from building sentences. And that book really changed my whole perspective on language. But at the same time, I had been struggling with, oh my God, how do I do this job? I have to write proposals that get funded. I have to write papers. No one really ever taught me how to do this. How do I do this? And so for many years, I'd been sort of percolating on this and working on just developing my own professional skills. But the true catalytic event was the summer I spent in France at a lab in Montpellier. And I had been thinking, well, how do I say thank you to this group for basically paying for me and my wife to have a you know, summer trip to Europe? Um, And we're in Vienna visiting some colleagues there and and a a couple of graduate students, Tina Kaiser, I think particularly, commented to my wife that, oh, yeah, we really like reading Josh's papers because they're prettily written was the words that Gwen brought to me. And she said, yeah, you do write well. Why don't you do a workshop for the group in Montpellier? That would be a a nice way of saying thank you. And so I did a set of workshops on, on writing that built the kind of core ideas I present in the book. And then I came back home to Santa Barbara and started doing a workshop and then a graduate class. And then I was writing notes up after each class session and and um, had uh, looked at what I was doing one day and realized, um, oh, yeah, this could be, you know, a couple of nice chapters for uh, Ecological Bulletin until the day I looked at what I was doing, and realized, oh, crap, I'm writing a book. I never wanted to write a book. I'm a scientist. I don't write books, but that's how it happened. It snuck up on me.
1: I see. All right. Well, (laughs) it's interesting that you discovered Williams, Joseph Williams, who wrote style and all of its forms that it exists. Now Uh, it's gone through many different (laughs) variations. Uh, He, it is kind of mind blowing. And, And I'm coming from a literature and language background. And I remember when I first encountered it too, and then you saw goodness, there's so much going on in a sentence. Um, And you use him to fantastic advantage. And I was just thrilled to see Williams brought into science because it it is so effective to think about a sentence or larger structures in a text the way he does.
0: Yeah, I mean, my book is, I could not have written it without his, but he's a linguist, so he works from the bottom up. And I'm an ecologist, so I work from the top down. So my book kind of takes the inverse structure to his and starting with the big picture and working down to the little where he takes the opposite. But it's a lot of the same concepts and ideas.
1: Yeah. And that's also a point that you make uh, later in the book, which I found uh, very pertinent that, um, of course, in science now, the as as us linguists call it, the L1 users, the people who you know right. grew up speaking English, basically are in the minority. We expect, you know, very many editors, reviewers and colleagues from around the world to not necessarily be, um, um, you know, first language users. And uh, you make the interesting point that A, it doesn't mean that we're natural, naturally good science writers, but B, it doesn't really matter anyway, because it's that first structural top down move that matters most. And that brings us to one of the key terms in the book, story. Could you perhaps say what it is that's on your mind when you use the word story?
0: Yeah, story of course for scientists can be a slightly delicate concept because they may think fiction or embellishment as opposed to story is just how you structure what you're telling. Um journalists the good ones at least are as objective as analytical as a scientist is, but they know that they're communicating to a particular audience that they don't have control over. And so they need to structure the flow of the content and the information to work for that audience. And that's really what story is about. It's about what goes where to communicate. And and that goes deep back into just the human history and how humans operate, that humans tell stories. It's what we do.
1: And it's uh, a topic I've had Discussions with, with other guests on my sh- uh, show here, uh, David Payne from an editor at Nature is, is one who comes to mind. Mm-hmm. And he, he talks about having used, the, he, he himself as a journalist, having used the word storytelling mm-hmm. or stories. Mm-hmm. And notice the sort of uncomfortable reaction amongst many scientists, just as you're describing. So this mm-hmm. idea that well maybe I'd be dumbing it down or making it a bit frivolous. I mean, this is real science. and It's in no way. Right, right, and he said he 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 uh, David Payne, which which I very much agree with, said I th- I think it's a terminological problem because what you've just described is structure, we call mm-hmm. it story. It's not necessarily, you know, I mean, the picture of a novel is not necessarily what somebody needs to have in mind. I would think when when you use story the way you're using it.
0: No, I I use story in, in the context of. You know, we, when we do science, we get raw data. We sort of distill that into numbers and rates and you know, DNA sequences. But then from that, we're trying to distill out true knowledge and understanding. What does this tell us about how nature works? That's what we really need to communicate when we write the papers. The data are the material we use to develop the insights we want to communicate. But in developing those insights, we need to structure them so that readers know, you know, what is the problem we're trying to solve? What are the specific questions that we're really asking? You know, what did we do to answer those questions? And then what ultimately did we learn from this? And those elements are classical story elements. Who are our characters? What do they have to do? What do they do? And then, what ultimately does it mean? Uh, the parallels are very direct. And so, we can use very classic story structures that have developed from the birth of humans as a species and of human communication to communicate effectively the points that we're trying to get across as scientists.
1: Mm. And I think very many people reading along in your book would would quickly see that a story is is probably not what they had originally thought. Um, mm-hmm. And even if not, I, I found wonderful in a, in a much later chapter when you talk about the the message box. Mm-hmm. And speaking to another editor also at Nature, uh, she she recommended the idea of a message being also another way of talking about what a story is, mm-hmm. because. I mean, that's what you often try to draw out in the different mm. techniques that you offer is uh, just as you said, but what is the question? What is your resolution? Why is it that you've even, you know, gone about this research? What, what is it you're trying to show? Where, where is the advance and so on? And this message box, box later in the book really breaks down with the problem and the so what and the benefits. So, so quite direct and simple questions. And one of the most important, I'd say, audience, whom mm-hmm. right? Whom are you writing for? Um, shocking how quickly so many scientists don't notice that they have an audience. Isn't isn't that something you've perhaps experienced as well?
0: I, I think we all know we have an audience. I think many people don't pay enough attention to who the right audience is or who who, who they really are talking to. There's a lot of pressure when we're writing, you know, we write to advance our own professional goals. It's a publisher parish kind of model of, I need to get papers published, you know, to support, to satisfy my my funders and to advance my own career. But those papers only have effect and impact on the people who read them and they, we read papers for our own personal reasons. I want to learn. I want to advance my own career. So those two professional pressures aren't quite in line with each other. As a reader, I don't necessarily need to read your paper. You do need to get it published, and you need me to read that, your paper and decide cite it so that you get credit and credibility. So a lot of authors, they're in this, I need to get the paper out, and I need to get it into the most high-profile journal I can, but don't necessarily think about, well, who are the people reviewing the work and reading the work who are going to make the decisions as to whether or not to accept the paper and whether or not to read and cite? So I have a message from my own data and my own work. How should I craft that to hit the readers that I'm aiming for with a particular journal, for example. A paper that's going to Nature has a very different audience than one that's going to a specialist journal.
1: So if I'm understanding you correctly, there's sort of this um, two directions in which uh, a scientist who's writing up his or her research is is being pulled. They Mm -hmm. look at a text the text, perhaps also, that they're creating at that moment, much as they would the rest of their research. In other words, they're extracting data, they're interested, they're they're immersed in what it is that they're doing. Mm-hmm. but on the other hand, they are fully aware that this publication or this proposal or whatever has real life consequences for them and their career. and it might be this sort of disconnect between those two directions that's that's causing them not necessarily to take audience so into consideration is is that sort of a, a fair way of putting it or?
0: I, I think so, because I think a lot of us, particularly when we're starting our careers, the pressure is the audience that we're looking towards is our peers and our mentors of, I need to get the paper out because I need to get a my PhD. And if I don't get the paper submitted, you know, I might not actually get a degree. So we're thinking in a very narrow little box of the people closest to us, forgetting that Ultimately, those people aren't the ones who build our career. The people who build our careers are the people who read our work, value it, invite us to conferences to talk. There's this global community that at that point we may not even know very well who they are and and what they know. And so, yes, sort of training yourself to think about who the audience could be. I have a message in this science. I have a story who could be interested in that? Not just my PhD advisor, but how widely could I cast it in a way that it would still work? You you bring up at
1: one point in the book the idea of checking out, if you've chosen a particular research journal, checking out the journal's description online, reading the journal a bit to get a flavor for who the specific audience in that case might be, if you've decided this is the right journal for my work mm-hmm. and this is where it's going to get noticed or cited. Um I've I've made a small tiny addition to that in the sense mm-hmm. of for example if your introductions tend to baffle I I work at a at a writing center and help uh, uh mm-hmm. um biologists write uh, their science the the introduction often baffles them throws them a bit it's <laughs> how how where do I cast the net yeah and this is precisely the question that we're <laughs> dealing with and 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 I've often said in this and I saw it reinforced in your book that you want to take your five, six terms that encapsulate your message and figure out where it is that you're going to pick that journal, pick that first journal, and then search the past five years for those terms and see how it is that those people are talking about your topics. And then there you have some information to go on of who might be reading this and how they'll be thinking about it. Um, it's a sort of mini Audience analysis, I suppose. Do do you see this as a perhaps useful exercise in the same direction of many of your other techniques?
0: Um, When you're starting out, I think so. As we develop in our careers, we sort of develop that knowledge just as, you know, sort of core because we live with the journals, we read the journals, we know what they do. Uh, But I think for a lot of people and in some national systems, there's huge pressure to get articles into the highest impact factor journals. And so I'm a a chief editor for the journal Soil Biology and Biochemistry, and we regularly see submissions that actually have nothing to do with biology or biochemistry, and sometimes not even soil. But because it's a high-profile journal within this larger field, people sometimes send us things. And they get rejected immediately because they're just not appropriate for the journal. It becomes a waste of everybody's time and effort. Um, So those are authors who haven't really looked at, yeah, what does this journal actually publish? What ideas, what are the themes, what's the best place to reach the people I'm trying to reach? And what are they saying about the
1: things? mm -hmm. And also, what is it that they are saying, these published articles in that journal, about the things that I want to talk about? um it seems like in the case of the people sending them to your to your journal where it just doesn't even cover the main topics they wouldn't even find the terms that they're writing about perhaps
0: well in in some ways in the modern world journals are almost don't matter because we don't go to the library and pick up physical things and look at tables of contents anymore we do google searches you know and we uh, google scholar and we find papers, and, and you can you know find a, an article, download an article, read an article, and cite an article without ever paying attention to where it was actually published. So as a reader, journals have become less important. Um, but the readers that matter if you're trying to publish are the reviewers and the editors, and they care because they're trying to cast a, a definition for a journal. And if your paper doesn't fit that definition, and if it isn't building on the current state of knowledge in that field your paper is going to fare very badly and if you're lucky they'll reject it and you know in five minutes it's just this doesn't belong here and if you're not it will go out for review and take several months before being rejected wasting a lot of your time when it could have been sent to a different journal that would have fit better
1: so in other words reading through the journal even though as you say for normal scientific practices not being so necessary is a useful exercise for an author who's trying to get an idea of okay well the reviewers and the editors of this journal how do they view these topics because they stand as a proxy for the way that the reviewers and the editors view their own readership then essentially
0: absolutely you know if if make sure that you really know what this journal is doing and and what it's about before sending a paper that might not fit and if you're not sure, send the editor an email um This is easy as an editor. I'd much rather get a quick inquiry and be able to you know give some guidance rather than having to deal with an inappropriate submission this
1: uh this brings me back to um where you began, as you were telling us, where did this book come from? And asking yourself, so how do I do this? How is it that I'm going to, you know, be able to write the way I'll need to? And that immediately makes me think of the, you know, the more inexperienced writers, the graduates, or even the undergraduates, the ones beginning their scientific uh, careers, and the sort of support that they get. I mean, as you just said, I was talking about analyzing the audience of a particular area. And you say, yeah, at some point in your career, that becomes the automatic. Yeah. You mm-hmm. understand the background and the context automatically. How is it that we get people to that level? And what role does writing play in that?
0: Well, the better papers are written and the clearer, the faster people will assimilate them and just the, the faster we can get everybody to understand what it is we're doing and where we're saying. Um, I think when we start our careers, learning to read a paper is challenging because they often appear to have an obtuse structure uh, that looks alien to what we're used to in the non-scientific world with introduction, methods, results, discussion, this formalized structuring. that lives alongside the actual story structure of the flow of content and the flow of ideas. And readers, when they're new, often I think end up spending a lot of time focusing on you know the details and the methods. Um, you know when I pick up a paper i I start by reading the first paragraph and then I go to the last paragraph. Uh, of the entire paper of like, what is the main story here? What are the main points you're trying to get across? Do I actually need to pay attention to the details? Um, You know, and those kinds of how do we assimilate things quickly to get the broad scope is something I think new readers really struggle with because they get lost in the weeds.
1: Yeah, you you also give this a a very nice graphic. You talk about the data, the information, the knowledge and then the understanding sort of as a typical development of good science. Right. Mm -hmm. And of course, I think when you're beginning, you know, maybe even your first years as a postdoc, you are caught in the weeds. (laughs) I mean, all of this is so new to you that you're not noticing, you're not noticing the entire game going on for the ball, right? You're, you're, Mm -hmm. you're very much, you're very much watching, um, what's happening instead of how people are doing it. And you use also a very useful word to encapsulate this. You talk about the the schema Mm -hmm. and how it is that, you know, an inexperienced writer is is trying to establish uh, schemas to begin with. And feels that so much description and explanation and definition needs to go on where the more experienced and, you know, tried and true <laughs> scientist who's been around a while, these things just sort of automatically show up in the prose. They just automatically show up in the more interesting, you know, larger questions, if you like.
0: Yeah, I, that as you get experience, you get more familiar with what you can expect people to already know. And so if I'm writing for this journal and this audience and this community, there's this body of knowledge I can pretty much presume that they already have in their head these ideas, these schemas that are already built in and that I don't need to try to reteach in the introduction of a paper. New readers are sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, 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 please. Sorry. Okay. New starting writers don't have that background. They don't know what everybody already knows because they're still learning it themselves. And so, in a lot of the papers they write, you'll see these introductions that sometimes go on for pages that are basically textbook. You know, let me define for you the basic things that I'm still not comfortable with. But actually, if you're in this field, you already know and are comfortable with, and all this stuff is going to be tedious and boring and quite useless. So an experienced writer will sort of touch on those points, but get through it in a quick paragraph, perhaps, to just sort of remind readers of here's the problem, here's where we're at. A junior writer, that may take two pages. Now, if you're starting off and you're still sort of building your own ideas and your own confidence, it's fine to write those first, those two pages in your first draft. Then take, you know, the the red pen and just slash them down. To the condensed, here's what I really need to say to sort of point at the ideas. But until you've built up some experience, it's harder to know how how little you can get away with.
1: Do you think any time can be won in this this you know, advancement of experience by the right sort of support? Your book would be, in my opinion, certainly one mm-hmm. of those sorts of support. But I'm also thinking of... Uh, you know a writing program um or even a skills program that goes beyond just statistics that goes to the point of pointing these things out right um you're struggling now with the information um there's a whole other level of things going on expect that it's going to take time to be able to with finesse deal with the science but also be aware of what it is that you're doing i find that especially in writing anyway in my experience you know, generating this awareness is often enough to see, then advances quite quickly.
0: I agree. I mean, my approach to writing papers is usually to try to give the oral presentation first, um, because I think that communication mode, it's shorter, it's more direct, um, forces you into thinking about sort of the story elements. What do I need to say? you know, in a, in a, in a presentation, you don't spend the first half of it doing textbook stuff. So we just think about it differently. And so by working in these different communication modes, we can be better prepared when we sit down to actually write the paper to say, what is the knowledge I'm really trying to get across here? How do I use my data to support that message? So then what do I? where are the elements of these pieces? Where do they go in the paper? Even if you don't do a formal outline like they sometimes taught us to do in, in, in high school, and grammar school, you have that outline more strongly in your head to start with. Too many people I know when they sit down to write a paper start with a blank mind and a blank screen and just start letting their fingers go. And they haven't really thought about the strategy of what they're trying to do. And then they end up with lots of words that, you know, ramble and don't make a lot of sense. And then they're having to figure out how to make sense out of this mass of words. And that's actually harder than if they'd done a little bit of strategic thinking before they started writing.
1: Strategy is a great word. I use the word purposes. I mean, coming from a rhetorical background, I mean, you want to achieve something with what you say or write. Mm -hmm. And for many sort of again younger scientists junior uh scientists perhaps that idea hasn't unfortunately they haven't been necessarily confronted with that idea mm-hmm. I, i've i've de- i've dealt with many scientists who I, i've then seen huh, that's an interesting view i mean they had been doing the best mm-hmm. work they could on their science and getting that all right without thinking as we said earlier i mean who's going to read that because that naturally entails and what are they going to do when they read it? <laughs> I mean, these are you know those those straightforward questions. You 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 give in the book a. Fantastic method for putting these things into practice. And I, I'd like to come to uh, just a few examples so the readers get a flavor for the book. Uh, for example, the OCAR, the OCAR, standing for mm-hmm. Opening Challenge, Action, and Resolution. This is mm-hmm. a, a very solid story structure kind of thing. And it and it really does pick out, uh, my experience totally, totally verifies this. All of those elements in the paper where very many scientists have difficulty. <laughs> uh, could you give the, give just perhaps a brief overview of Ocar?
0: Yeah, so this is the classic story structure that you see in every novel, essentially. The opening introduces the characters and the setting. That The, the challenge is, what do those characters have to do? If we look at, say, one of my favorite stories of all time, Lord of the Rings, okay, first we meet Frodo in the Shire and the Ring of Power, and we learn... The challenge, he has to take the ring and drop it in Mount Doom and save the world. That takes three books to get through. But we know that very early on of what that challenge is that provides the, the drive for a reader to follow through. And then the resolution is, you know, what did it all mean at the end? And he goes off to Elvin home and, you know, is, he's damaged. The world is saved. But there's that ending where it all comes together. These elements are fundamental in human communication. And so they are fundamental in a good scientific paper. The opening is that first sentence or paragraph where you define the problem. What's important? What are we trying to ultimately accomplish? That also defines the audience. If you care about this problem, maybe you want to read my paper. And so if you define the problem badly, you've lost audience. The challenge in a specialist paper is typically at the end of the introduction, where after going from the, you take from the big problem, then you funnel it down to, here is the specific question we're trying to ask, here are specific hypotheses. This is the little thing we're going to do in this paper that will help solve the big problem. The action is methods, results, everything you did to answer the question and thereby solve the problem. And then in the in the discussion leading to the conclusions, that final conclusion section is the resolution, which usually does three things. It starts by synopsizing the key findings. It then shows how those findings answer the specific question. And then it shows how by answering that question, you will help solve the problem and have moved You know the dial on our understanding of the overall problem in a paper for nature for example it may need to be a little bit more front-loaded more of the homeric structure of you know the epic where he was telling stories in bars for coins and so he needed to get people hooked quickly then the challenge moves up that's true in a proposal as well but these elements must be there they must be clear and they must be easily identifiable because if we don't know them, we don't know what you're really trying to tell us. We don't know the story.
1: You've definitely put your finger on one of the harder moments in the paper of many people that I've, I've worked together with, mm-hmm. what you call the funnel. Mm-hmm. So if it happens to be that you get the opening right and you understand what is my context, and if you were so lucky as to be able to say, okay, well, this is the challenge. This is definitely the question I want to be asking. And I can see that the rest of my results will lead to some sort of an interesting resolution. But that connection, precisely that, because that—that that, that is the storyteller's art, isn't it? To, <laughs> to then, uh-huh. to, to then br- bring them to that challenge, which your paper only has the answer to.
0: <laughs> yeah, and a good paper is you start with, okay, here's a big problem that many people have worked on and are working on. And then you're trying to take them to the, if this is the problem, the thing we must be doing now is to answer this one question, then gosh, I did that. Um, yes, that means using the existing knowledge base, the existing literature base to going, okay, so what do we know about this? Well, we know this, but but that's really just framing the edge of knowledge um, and, and building down from there. Because um, One of the challenges I think we have in science is that all the way up, probably through university, we're being taught scientific knowledge, but that isn't really science. That's the product of science. Science is the process of learning new things. And there's a a wonderful little book called Ignorance, How It Drives Science, um, Stuart Feierstein writes that I'm very jealous I didn't write. It's elegant in that idea of reminding people that science is about ignorance. Science is about what we don't know and how to figure it out. And so in a good introduction, you're not just trying to tell people everything we know about a field. You're trying to either identify the gap in what we know. We know this, but oh God, there's this edge here. And we know this, but we don't know that. And when we put all these pieces together, there's this hole that's important to fill or truly even, the the most important papers don't just say there's a gap, but they say there's an error. We've been thinking about this in this way, but we've been wrong in some way. And that kind of, you know, we've been wrong. Oh, well, that's got to really engage readers. And so I didn't actually talk about that in the book. That's an insight I've developed later. But the idea of you must show that whole or that error and that that's what engages a reader and makes them want to read your paper. None of us have the time to just read every paper that presents a new body of information. There's way too much of us for us to do that. We want to have new questions answered and to be drawn in and and that's what that introduction does. It takes us and says from this problem. here's." the error or here's the hole and here's how i'm going to fill it that engages a reader
1: there's there's two things i need to pick up there and they they may take some expanding but i'm going Mm -hmm. to mention them just sort of in brief overview so we Mm -hmm. have a bit of a structure Mm -hmm. (laughs) i'm on the best behavior today because i have somebody (laughs) who notices these things um the first is the brilliant point that you make there about what is the product of science and what does it mean to actually be doing science or so this idea of ignorance and that we're moving somewhere forward. And what is it that, uh, again, junior scientists are typically doing, typically they're explaining yeah, which is not what you do when you're actually covering new ground. And the, the other key word that I'd like to sort of touch upon is this idea of the knowledge gap, or as you've just sort of uh, expanded it also to this idea of an error. Um, Perhaps we'll start backwards since we're talking about that. Uh, the, this knowledge gap idea. Um, Joseph Williams worked in the Little Red Schoolhouse over in the Chicago Writing Program, and there, uh, his his let's say his colleagues of today, <laughs> um, uh, Larry McCarney for one, um, uh, Catherine Conrad for another, they they prefer, and I'm not sure if this is hair splitting, but I see that point. They prefer a word such as instability. So to generate in the current knowledge or the current understanding, some piece of information, some view, some finding, whatever it might be, that could have repercussions down the line, right? It's it's shaking things up a bit. That would probably be very close to this idea of an, an error. Uh, Bradley Alger, just to give one more example before we go on there, Bradley Alger in his, his uh, new book, Defense of the Scientific Hypothesis, talks about the content. So you're testing something and um, that is what is to be expected of you. I mean, we're constantly as scientists testing content, he says. Um, so maybe I'll just give that over to you, The the appropriateness of instability, gap, error. I mean... The reason it's interesting is because, well, what is it that a writer needs to be looking for in that intro?
0: All of those touch on the why should I read this um, and, and back to the point that I just made about there's just too much just information out there for any human to, to assimilate and papers that just are one more case study um, we we may cite them when we're doing a, a, a synthesis, but we don't read them to advance our own knowledge and our own understanding. Um, so, gap, error, instability are all working in that same area of really of how do you generate the the, the interest in a reader? What is it that you're going to accomplish that they're going to care about? Certainly the most highly cited paper I will ever write had an opening sentence of, you know, since the 1800s, the perceived center of the the nitrogen cycle has been in mineralization. I chose that word perceived very carefully when I wrote that paper, because since the first sentence defines a problem, that focuses that idea, okay, there must have been something wrong with that perception. I don't say that right there, but we know I'm defining a problem. so that problem has to be focused on that word in that sentence. It's perceived. There must be something wrong with the perception. That's defining an error or an instability as opposed to just a hole. Um, and that's probably why it's the most highly cited paper I'll ever write. Um, Congratulations, though. That one was quite a while ago, actually, at this point. Um, it was an earlier paper, but I think it built my career in a lot of ways. Um, But all of these things are really trying to to frame the hook. Why should I read this and and why does it matter to me and what am I going to learn from it that you're trying to communicate um, to a reader? As a junior scientist, that's harder because often figuring out where the gap is or where the errors are, the instabilities, um, takes some perspective on on the the development of thinking in your field. And, and what do you do when I'm new? I don't really know the history of my field very well. I don't really know how thinking has been changing. Um, and I think one problem with the way we often train scientists now is we don't often give them or push them to read some of the older literature. Uh, and in my field in environmental science, things aren't completely revolutionized every five years. The thinking and the theories have been developing over time, but having some perspective on how that's happened, I think is important and very valuable. And I rely on it a lot, but I've always read a lot of history and I've always enjoyed reading history because it gives you a perspective on current, uh, the current state. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. you mentioned again uh, the education or the training of scientists, and uh, to come back to the Chicago School of um, Chicago Writing Program, Larry uh, McCarney, who was the former director, once said that um, the last thing you want to be doing in your first lines is explaining. And it's unfortunate how it is that our education, the education that scientists are put through, is actually teaching them how to explain why, Larry McCarney says, well, because the professors are testing whether or not you've understood the material. Yeah. So in other yeah, words, no. we've got these, we've got these sort of conflicting um, objectives. You know, what does the student know? But the bigger point is what you're talking about when you look back over history, get a feel for the whole field. What does the student need to be able to do? That's mm-hmm. the other thing that they need to be trained in.
0: Yeah, some of um, I've seen some of McInerney's um, lectures on 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 the web. And yes, they're brilliant. And the point that as we spend many years as students training what ultimately are actually bad habits, we train students when they're writing, the only audience they're writing to is the professor. And the message we're trying to translate to the professor is, I got the material you you gave me. That ends the minute you finish your undergraduate program or you finish taking classes. And from there on, you're talking to an audience that you may not fully know who they are. Um, You may not know what they know. And you're not trying to explain what we already know. You're trying to teach them new things that they don't already know. Um, But first, you need to convince them that they ought to read your paper and that they want to learn what you have to teach. And that isn't just dumping more facts on them, but dumping new insights and ideas and things that will change their perception of the world. That's the idea of instability, I think.
1: Yes, definitely. And and that covers our two points there. So we got through that, but it, but it brings us right back to, we've talked about the opening. We've talked about the funnel. The challenge is another fascinating point. And it's also the operative moment in a paper for just what we're talking about. How do you generate for them interest, you know, for your readers? Um, and you say there, uh, I'm, I'm quoting here one bit, uh, authors focus on the information they will collect rather than the knowledge that they hope to gain. They assume that the question is obvious from all they've said in the introduction and they don't need to state it. They are almost always wrong. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, uh, so what is it in the challenge that needs to be done? What is it that should be on the writer's mind?
0: Well, it is. What is the question you're trying to ask? I see that as coming before a specific hypothesis, because a hypothesis is making a statement of, here is how I think nature works, and I'm going to try to test that idea. But the question came first in terms of, how do I think nature works? How do I think this works? Um, What is it that I really want to learn? And whether or not you then frame a formalized hypothesis or not is, is less important because some fields of science are very form, uh, you know um, traditional in there. You have to have a hypothesis. Others, not quite so much so, but everybody, you have to have the question. From that, you then say, well, here's how I'm going to answer it. I may have a specific hypothesis that I will test. There are certain methods and measurements that I will do that, you know, here's how I'm going to use them. But I need to get the context of how you're looking at using your actual data to try to answer the question. And that is the sort of the larger part of the challenge. Often it's a simple question that you then elaborate on a little bit. Um, I'm also more focused on questions and hypotheses because a lot of people In papers I see, their hypotheses are trivial. They're like, you know, adding nitrogen will influence plant productivity. It's like, okay, we already know that's true. Um, So I'm, I'm bored with this already. I don't need to read this. They're not testable and falsifiable statements about how nature works. They're saying they're often what people call a hypothesis is really a simple prediction about what the data will look like. And that is not a scientific hypothesis, not in the sort of the, the philosophy of science approach. And it's not very interesting to a reader to just say, "I predict that this is what my data will look like."
1: If there's certainly anything that uh, a reader takes away from uh, the new book I just mentioned, there, Bradley um, uh, Bradley Alger's uh, defense of the scientific hypothesis is is just what you've said: predictions and hypotheses are two different things. <laughs> And, uh, and 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 the prediction of your own results is
0: not such an impressive act, is it? <laughs> especially since they're often cast after you saw the results. We write the paper well, after obviously. we know what we found. So, <laughs> um, you know, I, I've I have some I have sometimes written or and read papers where they say, you know, we use these data to test this hypothesis, and I usually interpret that as we didn't know that this was a hypothesis we we were going to be able to test with this study until after we did it. And we're trying (laughs) to be sort of honest and not saying we had the hypothesis first, which is the way you're supposed to do it. But (laughs) this is a hypothesis that exists in our field, and oh my God, my data talked to that. And so that's a way of sort of circumventing being dishonest. Um, And that's fine. uh, you know we don't often don't know what story is going to emerge from our studies until we actually see the data and and then our job as scientists and as authors is to use those results to do the best we can to advance the field and to educate our peers and ourselves and that means telling the story that emerged from the study not trying to jam the data into the story we hope that we were going to be telling at the beginning
1: one thing that also becomes very clear with this Ocar, the mm. opening challenge action mm. resolution, just for the listeners, um, is that you you need to be as a reader clear what point in the structure you're at. Um, you make you make a very uh, good point again and again that uh, if the reader doesn't understand where he or she is at that moment, then you're not really doing your job. If it's not clear mm-hmm. that we've moved to challenge material, then um, yeah, you've kind of lost, haven't you? <laughs> it it shouldn't be mm-hmm. obvious. And, yes, uh, our I find question that interesting.
0: is, yes. Uh,
1: right, right. And, and precisely that, I find that interesting because uh, corpus linguists have, have found, Bethany Gray being one in the research article, that, for instance, in biology, mm-hmm. massive, very important field, has the lowest rates of explicit questions amongst huh. almost any other field. So in other words, it's almost like biologists are out there to avoid asking a question that is at least explicit, you know, with a question mark or
0: mm-hmm. something,
1: or even even an indirect question. Um, it just needs to sort of naturally grow out of the text, apparently.
0: That's, that's interesting, because my somewhat naive perspective from just having randomly looked at papers from all sorts of fields of science was that, I thought that biomedical-type biology researchers were generally the worst writers of of any field of science I'd looked at when I was looking at the book. That's not in any way a valid study. It was just sort of my random chance, because, yes, I think it was very much that. Lots of very narrowly diving into, into deep technicality and not doing a good job of framing a question or building things off theory that you can then test or validate, very empirical and, and very narrow. Interesting,
1: um, and, and that brings me to another topic I certainly wanted to address with you, uh, because of your uh, and these add to your credentials uh, for the book. You could write well. You're a scientist. You edit at an important journal. You also do lots of uh, grant uh, work, which which gave you the view of really all the important stations that a scientist is going. <clears throat> excuse me, a scientist is going to need to write for. Um, so some of the statements that you make in the book really caught my attention. For example, unfortunately, you can't go back and rewrite a published paper. All you can do is try to learn from mistakes and make the next one better. And that made me think, especially where you use published materials uh, as examples, and I know I use published materials in, in my classes and edit them. <laughs> what, what, what would be your opinion on, let's say, the goodness of writing? and published writing that's out there because very often a scientist will be just say, you know, sent out and say, well, look how people are doing it. And sometimes they're doing it in ways that, you know, aren't necessarily the best. Right.
0: <laughs> um, I'll, I'll pull up here. Sturgeon's Law. Uh, Ted Sturgeon was a science science fiction writer years ago. And Sturgeon's law says that, you know, 90% of everything is crap. Um, and, and I think in academic writing, We need to redefine crap some for that to be true. It's not like it's invalid, but most of what's out there is not very powerful or very effective. And most of what's out there does not get cited and used a lot. It may have gotten published because it was sound enough to find a home. But one thing I noticed certainly when I was working on the book, but I think I'd noticed this more uh, intuitively earlier, the people who are leaders in their field write well. When I look at, certainly at my own field, the people who have become the bigwigs write well. They communicate clearly. They frame questions in ways that engage readers. They Their papers tell stories that are powerful and compelling. And they're the ones that people keep reading and reading and reading and reading. The people who are just the, the mid-level, you know, sort of, you know, sort of, Working class of productive but not field leading scientists often don't write as well because they're just producing these papers that are technically sound but aren't telling those bigger stories and they aren't reaching to those wider messages and they're not being as effective in the messages that they are reaching towards. And so if you want to be a field leader, if you really want to have your work have impact and reach, writing it well is critical. It's what stands out from the pack. And when we're developing our careers as scientists, we're trying to really do two things that are slightly at odds with each other. One is we're trying to show we're a member of the club. That means using the language, using the terms, using the forms and structures of a paper to show, yes, I'm one of you guys. But we're also trying to stand out from that path. We're trying to show something that is not just you know, part of the general mass. We're trying to be better than. And that means learning how to do that well.
1: And This is also a point that you make right in the introduction that um, the most important tool that you have for analyzing and thinking in science is writing. So this is, you know, more than just communication. Obviously, it is communication, but you even put it on the level of the research even, that it's through writing that you can get to that level of leader, as you say, because you grapple with the problems and you figure out what is just the information and what comes out of the information. What do we gain from it?
0: Yeah, I often figure I don't really understand something until I've written it, because in the process of writing what you th- what you thought you knew, you suddenly start running into your own, oh, wait, I hadn't thought about that. That forces you to really deal more deeply with your own material, and that helps then distill out a stronger story and a stronger paper, and that, that takes time. And I think this is one of the challenges many people scientists now have of the pressure to get things out quickly as opposed to getting them out well
1: and this is where again as i kicked off the interview the strength of bringing scientists in contact with the ideas of the practice of professional writers really comes in um, that idea of patience and working at it you, you use Anne lamotte whose bird by bird book is just you know one of those classics of of You know, yeah, for the for the fiction writer. And she puts character at the center of the fiction writer's day work, you know, and at the center of what the fiction writer is ultimately trying to achieve. And this idea that you do not sort of force your characters to do anything. You listen to them patiently, even if it takes years. And then you know what story they belong to. And you brilliantly bring that over into you're a scientist you listen patiently to your data and wait and wait and watch until the story that is meant to come out of it comes out of it. You, you give b- b- great examples. Uh, uh, Bill Dietrich, I think, was a, a graduate student working on slope steepness. A Weintraub, I forget his first name. Mike,
0: Mike who, Weintraub, he was a PhD thank student of mine, yeah.
1: Yeah, up in Alaska, working and working for months and s- essentially... Uh, all the data really came of nothing. It just showed him what he didn't need. And I mean, anyone who has tried to write fiction or poetry knows that you've got to stare at the wall for a number of months before, (laughs) you know, before something comes in. And if you throw away a stack of 300 pages, it's because the better novel is going to be around the corner. Um, So that sort of mentality that you connect with is also the scientist's mentality.
0: Yeah, the challenge we face as scientists is that we're often willing to sit on our data for a while to process it. But when it comes to writing, it's like we're, you know, we're more like serial writers of I am on a deadline. I need to get this out. You can't really just wait for the paper for years because A, it may become obsolete, but also your funders will get very upset with you if you never get the papers out. So there is strong time pressure that we that we all live under to get stuff out. Um, the thing about the Anna Lamott uh, books that, that that I make a focal point in my groups is is um, her chapter on shitty first drafts. You know, all this is how you get to good second drafts and terrific third drafts. I think one of the challenges that uh, particularly starting writers face is wanting it to be perfect and that push for perfection can be quite paralyzing. Of, I can't write the perfect, the perfect first paragraph. I'm struggling with this. Like, but you can't know what the perfect first paragraph will be until you've written the last one. And so we actually just make it a little acronym. Oh, it's just an SFD. It's just a shitty first draft. But that sort of takes some of the sting out of those early drafts of they're not perfect. No matter how good they are, it's still just an SFD. It needs work, and, and and that I think accepting that can help writers get over some of that, you know, paralysis of perfectionism.
1: One of the things I say in that connection, and and um, from what I see in the book, it would probably chime true with you as well, is um, exactly. Perfectionism isn't going to get you anywhere. You've got to be as Anne Lamott and so many other writers. Stephen King is another one you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, he has the brilliant line in in his book on writing that um, you write every day. Yeah, you can take all right. You can take off Fourth of July and Christmas. I don't, but <laughs>
0: if you want, <laughs> you can.
1: <laughs> um, so I mean, this 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 idea of dealing with um, you know the perfectionism or the reluctance to start because you know the first lines aren't ready yet is just never stop writing. And what I mean by that when I tell people that is simply, as you say in the book, consider you go every day to the lab, well, consider writing part of your research. So I often tell them, tie it to something that you always do. If you always have a cup of coffee in the morning, well, take it to your desk and sit there for 15 minutes and and just start writing about you know the research. Uh, it's, it's a bit like a lab notebook, but it's more than a lab notebook because you're thinking now, you know, and not just mm-hmm. observing.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a good idea. And it's not the way I tend to operate, but we all have our own different ways. I think one of the other important things is to, you know, once you start writing a section, just keep going. Don't stop. Once you start going back and editing sentences while you're writing them, then you're into the par- paralytic mode. Um, And Lamott talks about it really well with the idea of, you know, turn down your critical, you know, sensibilities as you're in your first draft and then turn them way up later. Um, The idea is to get the document as good as it is possible for you to get it within certain constraints of time and effort and stuff like that. And it doesn't have to be perfect. I mean, we're not trying to write. You know shakespearean play that will stand the test of centuries we're trying to write a paper that's going to make a splash over the next year 10 years maybe in some fields where things have longer shelf lives you know 20 or 30 years there are papers i still assign in my classes they're several decades old um it has to be good enough and and we're tolerant as readers but While I may accept imperfect writing, if I can't figure out what you're trying to communicate, then you didn't communicate anything. Communication is what I get, not what you think you gave. And that ties back into this thinking about your readers and your audience of what do they know and how will this work for them, not... For you.
1: Yeah, and, and precisely that's what, what I try to drive home when I say, you know, just don't stop writing. And again, even mm-hmm. if it's just, you know, the length of a cup of coffee each day, because it, 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 it trains, in my opinion, two things. It shows that mm-hmm. writing is not just, you know, the finished product,
0: mm-hmm. which is
1: huge. And I try to tell them that writing that you're doing every day is writing to think. Mm -hmm. The writing that when you actually open the document and put a title on it and section it out into an introduction and so on, that's the writing to communicate. But that second writing gets
0: better the more you write to think. Right. Yeah, and there are other ways of doing the thinking part other than just the, the writing it, talking about it, presenting it. Any of these things will help you figure out that, oh, wait, that doesn't quite work, parts of what you're doing. But the writing regularly and and often also just makes that a more habitual process and a less of an alien thing to do. Where often I think sitting down to write a paper can feel that way. And for those of us who go into science, you know, we may have done essays in English classes back in grade schools and high school or even in college. But we went into science because we were interested in the material and in the content. I think I was a better writer when I graduated high school than when I graduated college, because I didn't do really anything but chemistry in college. And that never meant actually having to explain my thinking in words. It meant, you know, writing lab reports, but mostly the technical stuff. And so we don't get any of that training or any of that thinking as to what it really means to write professional work and then all of a sudden that's the thing we have to do to make our livelihoods and And many of us are badly prepared to do that
1: yeah and this this is one of the the problems i find with uh you know trainings of scientists it shouldn't be that hard for them um and it's also shown throughout other cultures i mean i work here in germany but i mean there's there's no shortage of non uh first language uh, english users in the scientific community and and as you bring up in your book and as we mentioned earlier they they often see this as a language issue right they just don't know which preposition goes here or there and as 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 you've just made clear it's it's a thinking issue really um ken highland who is a a major researcher in second language writing said at this level when you're writing in science it's really about rhetoric it's not about language Mm -hmm. And that seems to describe the process that you went through. The more science you did, the further you got away from understanding audience and so on.
0: Mm-hmm. This is also why I sort of borrow from kind of military history and military thinking, the tactics, you know, strategy kind of breakdown. down. The, yeah. Actually, how you craft the words and so for the challenges for writing in second language is tactics. But in the army, that's what, you know, 22-year-old lieutenants are involved in. the crafting a document that actually communicates is about the strategy and how you structure the overall campaign, that's what generals do. That's what takes more experience. That's truly, ultimately, the harder part, because it doesn't matter if your tactics are good, if your strategy is stupid. I mean, I used to say I grew up during the Vietnam War era where the American army used to say we never lost a battle in Vietnam. It's like, it didn't matter. We lost the war because our strategy sucked. We just repeated the same mistakes in Afghanistan. But we weren't fighting the right war. We hadn't really done the strategy right. So we got in trouble. It didn't matter that our tactics were good. So if you struggle with writing English, you you can get people to help you with, fixing your grammar. You can't hire someone to help you with fixing your story because that's the ultimate science. That's yours. So if you struggle with English, that I hope would be reassurance. Figuring out the story is, is amazingly hard, whatever language you're doing it in. It's no easier for us who are native English speakers.
1: That's a very good point. And it also shows that Vietnam was like a rejected paper,
0: really. Yes. <laughs> and, and a very I, I, damaging one to our career, as is Afghanistan. Well put,
1: well put. Um, I actually started off in this direction. I got sidetracked. I was mentioning uh-huh. your, your your broad base of, of work in, in science and also in editing and, and your work also for funding bodies and, and, mm. and knowledge about grant proposals. Some of the points that you make there were, I think, Extreme, uh, definitely going to be extremely interesting to uh, uh, many scientists who may not have thought of it that way. For instance, uh, you know, knowing your funding body and what it mm-hmm. is that they do and what it is that they want uh, to do with their money, being emotional, which was um, perhaps not anybody's first thought in a grant proposal, showing your excitement for the issue or for the problem that you're trying to solve. Well, you and, need to invoke last-
0: that incitement in your reviewers, because they're the ones who are going to decide whether or not you get funded.
1: Precisely, precisely. Mm-hmm. And uh, exactly. And, and I thought that, you know, emotion or enthusiasm, I don't know if that would be first on people's minds when they were, you know, putting together their grant proposal. I would think uh,
0: they'd probably I, I think be thinking we, elsewhere. Yeah. I think when we start writing proposals, our minds are focused on our methods. But methods are where proposals fail, not where they succeed. Because when I'm reviewing a proposal, if if I think your problem is trivial, you're dead. If I think your questions are dull, you're dead. Only if the problem seems, that's a cool problem, I hadn't thought about it. And and that question, yeah, that's a cool thing to be doing. At that point only am I now looking at your methods and approaches to see, does it look like you're going to be able to deliver on the promise? But if I don't care about the promise, nothing else in the document matters. So I think, you know, we get very caught up in, in those details and that focus. And until we've actually served on review panels and see how they actually work and humans work in terms of the, yeah, this is really cool proposal. I think we should fund it. Um, you realize that, right, the, the real focus is you need to invoke that kind of passion. And energy among a reviewer, and then just not lose it in in your methods and, and and technical material.
1: And that's where also the resolution, which was another point that caught my attention, comes in. You make you make a very clear uh, statement for the 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 importance, the centrality of of making your um, grant proposal, even if it means cutting elsewhere to fit your fifteen pages, end on a clear resolution. Because that is for the fundable or to be funded, that might be the line, right? At that point, the reviewer is still thinking.
0: Yeah. And and also, we often don't give our best time and highest quality time to reviewing. I often say the view out my window and I'm reviewing proposals is, you know, the view out, out the airplane window. Um, that hasn't been true for a while with COVID, but it's still true. We're reviewing proposals because we have to. We may be reading parts of it at different times. At the end of the proposal, as, as a reviewer, I haven't quite made up all of my mind and thinking and figured out what to say. That's, as, as the author, that's your opportunity to tell me of here's why this is cool and why I should say this is a great proposal. You've got to fund it. You know, sort of the last step. Well,
1: sales well <laughs> Definitely, and 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 speaking of last, uh, Joshua, you've been uh, very generous with your time. I I thank you very much. Uh, I do have one last question though. Um, you have impressed uh, people even early on in your career with the way that you write. I've also just stated and entirely believe how well uh, this book was written. Uh, give us maybe a, a personal tip. What, what do you read? You mentioned Lord of the Rings. Do you, do you have any, any sort of books that you like going to or any types of books or any literature or um, anything along those I've, lines? I've
0: always read a lot of history. And over the last 10 or, 10 or more years, I kind of collect books on writing and language and communication because as a professional writer, I study my craft um, and I'm always looking for, for new insight. Um, I read a lot of bad papers as a journal letterter. Um But for my own entertainment, I read a lot of history and historians often write well because they are crafting narrative and, and telling stories and they always have a character in it. But um, I read a bunch of things. I don't read as much as I would like to anymore.
1: Well, you know, I entirely agree on the history point. that's 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 and, definitely for sure. Very, very many uh, great historians and, out there um, writing well.
0: But I didn't start as a terribly good writer. Um, I think I may have had some innate talent, perhaps, but most I've gotten better because I've worked at it.
1: Well, that's the message to send out. (laughs) And your book is the place to start with that. Definitely. Um, Well, thank you very much. That is Joshua Joshua Schimmel and his book, Writing Science, How to Write Papers that Get Cited and Proposals that Get Funded is out with Oxford University Press. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Joshua. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication.